hit record. This is uh, Brenda's cue to start recording. Okay, thanks everyone. Um, so welcome. We're going to call the meeting to order uh, today, Tuesday, December 8th at 536. Uh, Brenda, can you please do roll call? Yes. Lucia Angel? Present. Neha Banger? Here. B. Frank Bunker? Here. Richard Harvey? Loretta Mellon? Present. Eric Murphy? Mark Smith? Ali Yassin? Here. We have a quorum. Great. Thank you. Um, so we start things off today with Alexander. Great. Alex, can you take uh, Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, thank you. Uh, you know, as a reminder, you know, our bylaws do require that the first uh, order for the December meeting will be for us to elect the chair and the vice chair of the co-applicant board. Uh, before we do that, however, there was a nomination that was made, uh, and the nomination was for... The state legislature has passed this. Oh. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Once again... Uh, the nomination that was made, it was for Loretta uh, Medellin, who was nominated to be a chair. Now, my understanding is that Loretta has accepted that nomination. And now, you know, given that we gave the other two candidates an opportunity to briefly address the rest of the board, uh, I'd like to extend that opportunity to Loretta. Uh, Loretta, you know, feel free if you want to share a few points as far as why you would like to be uh, the chair of the board, and then we can go from there. Thank you. Well, I was honored to be nominated. Um, I have enjoyed working with this board tremendously over the last year. Um, my heart is truly um, into helping the homeless for a variety of reasons. You know, um, one, I, a lot of you don't know my whole story, but I was homeless for about 10 months after I retired from teaching. And so um, I do understand the, how that works. I understand the, the pain of it. And um, thank God I'm not there now anymore. And I've recovered. And someday, if you ever want to hear my story, I can tell you. But um, I, my heart is for Alameda County, um, or I should say Highland Hospital. I have a, a, a great love for Highlands. And I've been volunteering there for so long. And I just, um, I feel honored to be able to help in the community with, in any way that I can. So that's that's where I stand. Great. Thank you for sharing and that. To, and I would love to work with, with Neha. I know she's nominated too. Um, I, feel, I feel like she's probably more qualified than myself. But um, whatever position you would like me to, to to do if I'm nominated, I will accept it. Miranda, I'll tell you who I think is more qualified because I nominated you. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, thank you both. Who, who uh, said that? Neha. Neha said, said that. that. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
as of right now, uh, and I'll just give a summary as it stands, we do have two nominations, and then this is more of a reminder as well for the rest of the board, uh, two nominations for the position of chair, and that will be uh, both uh, member Vanguard and member Medellin. Uh, now, for the position of VP, we also have two nominations, one of them being, again, uh, member Vanguard, and then the other nomination being uh, member Murphy. Uh, you know, with, in this I'll quote with the caveat of member Murphy acknowledging that he would rather, uh, you know, give an opportunity to someone else, but if that person, you know, does not want to move forward with that position, then he will be more than happy to feel the role of the VP. So with that, why don't we start uh, with the election of the chair of the co-applicant board. So as a reminder, this will start uh, January 1st and will end December 31st. Mm -hmm. now, um, Alex, can uh -huh. I ask you a question before we move? Sure. If uh, Eric is, is standing in just in so that he, if you'd rather have someone else take the position, I'm happy to take I'm happy to um, denominate myself or denominate from chair and then just keep the vice chair nomination and that way there's one one nomination for each or we need to go through the formal process. Uh, so, so based on the bylaws, you can essentially withdraw your acceptance at any given moment. So if that's what, you know, you are proposing to do at this juncture, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, you can just withdraw. The board doesn't have to approve your withdrawal for the chair position. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll withdraw from the chair position and, and keep with the vice chair position then. Okay, mm -hmm. great. So with that, uh, we still need the board to vote uh, on the nomination of member Medellin for the, the chair of the co-applicant board. So uh, I will ask the board to go ahead and vote, and I will ask by, well, start by saying, those in favor, please state your endorsement and approval. Uh, and, and, and if possible, please, let's try to do it one by one just so that I can catch, uh, you know, the number of individuals that uh, will endorse. So with that, can we start with uh, anyone? I'm going to Loretta. Okay. The president, and for Anihan, the vice president. Okay. So, so we'll do the second one after. Uh, okay. The VP. Yeah. So right now we'll okay. be only for uh, chair. So, all right. So we. Uh huh. Alex, do you want to do it by roll call? Will that be sure, easier I mean, for you? Yeah, we can do that. So we have member Walker. So, uh, current chair Angel. Okay. Thank you. Uh, member Banger? I vote for Loretta. Thank you. Uh, in my understanding, is Member Harvey is currently not, not in. If that has changed, please Richard. let us know. Richard. I am here. Hey, Richard. Hello. So let me know if you vote uh, to endorse uh, Member Medellin as the chair for the 2021 year. Uh, can I come back to me, please? Sure, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, we have uh, Member Murphy. Not sure if he has joined. Okay. So Member Smith is currently not in. Please speak otherwise if that's not the case. Hello. Can you hear me? Oh, oh, I can hear you, Mark. 
Hello. Yeah, this is Mark. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sorry. Um, yes, um, uh, uh, I, I nominate uh, 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 Ms. Medellin. Okay, so you endorse the nomination for uh, Member Medellin. Yes. Uh, so with that, uh, that's actually the majority, uh, and that's sufficient for us to state, uh, <laughs> you know, Loretta Medellin as the upcoming, again, effective January 1st, 2021. Uh, she will take the role of board chair of the Coapican board. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So now moving on to the next position, which will be uh, the position for VP of the Coapican board. Now, because we do have two candidates, we'll have to go one by one. Uh, and if there is a tiebreaker, then we'll have to figure something out just like what we did last year. So that being said, uh, so this is again for the nomination of VP. We'll start with member Vanguard. So let me start by asking uh, the current chair, Angel, uh, member Angel. Uh, uh, for, uh, okay. Thank you. Now moving down to, uh, let's see, uh, member Walker. Nihai. Thank you. Uh, member Hervey. Ms. Bangar. Thank you. Uh, Member Medellin. Ms. Bangar. Thank you. Uh, Member Smith. Bangar. Thank you. Um, if, if Member Murphy is on the line, please let us know. Yeah, okay. Uh, member Yasin. I vote for uh, Niha. Okay, thank you. That is, so we have five votes. Uh, and of course, you know, Member uh, Bangar, you can vote as well. Part of the agenda. I'll turn it back to the current chair. Great. 
Thank you, Alex, and thanks, everyone. And congratulations, Loretta. And thank, you. thank you so much for taking on the roles um, and representing our uh, cab. Um, and it just says my, my, I guess it's my last chair meeting. I just want to take the opportunity to thank everyone for um, allowing me to be your chair for the last year and a half. Um, it was a really great opportunity and experience, um, and um, yeah, looking forward to competing with the group um, and being part of the work that we're doing, which is incredibly important. Um, so yeah, excited for this next year. Lucy, it's been great working with you. You've been really good at, at leading us. Thank you for your leadership. Yes, and I, I agree. I agree. Agreed. <laughs> I concur. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Okay, um, so we will actually move to our next uh, agenda item, uh, which is our uh, um, approval of our previous meeting minutes. So um, if there are any objections, um, can I get a motion to approve last month's uh, meeting minutes? I Mark, I Mark Smith, so move. I second. Thanks, B. Um, so being uh, all in favor? Aye. Aye. Any uh, opposed? <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Uh, meeting minutes approved. Uh, and the next agenda item. Well, it's going to be uh, Heather uh, with our, uh, sorry, what is it called? Um, sorry. Okay, it's the, it's, we're, we're going to check in on the process for new member <coughs> report. Yeah. Oh, yeah. New member report. All right, so, um, so Lucia and I were talking and uh, going over the process for how we accept new members of the application and election process is, and so we thought it would be good to just check in and review that process with you today because we do have a new member on the agenda for today. Um, so there is a memo. Thank you, Brenda, for pulling up the memo. Um, the standard process is that the application is posted publicly. You can find that on our website, um, Alameda Health System website. Um, we accept applications on a rolling basis. Uh, we have to have a minimum of nine members on our board, and we can have up to 25. And this is one of the reasons that we keep the application process open on a rolling basis. Mm -hmm. Once the applications come in, we review them. And when we review them at the office, it's really for um, eligibility and membership compliance. There are specific compliance metrics that we have to meet at all times for our board membership. Um, and there are specifics around working in the healthcare industry and limitations on how many people can be working in the healthcare industry and also mm -hmm. um, limitations on how many people are not members or, or patients of Alameda Health System. This is really intended to be uh, a board of patients, public people from the public supporting this entity, and so we are looking at that compliance. 
Um, once we've reviewed and determined that the patient, I'm sorry, that the applicant is compliant application, then we let them know that they are compliant and that they will be presented and voted on the next regular meeting of the CAB. If it's not compliant, if, if um, their membership would throw our compliance off, then we let them know that at this point it would impact our compliance and that we're not able to vote on them at this point or bring them onto the board and that we kind of hold them, they're on hold in our in our files until a space opens up that they would be able to fill that would keep us in compliance. And then at that point, so let's say we go back to one who's compliance and we come to the board meeting and you guys vote on whether or not to accept that number. That is the process. Does anybody have any questions? Mm -hmm. Um, this is Mark. Uh, just one quick question. Um, um, I understand what you were saying about um, there's certain um, qualifications or uh, backgrounds that that uh, we would uh, uh, we would want uh, the applicant to have. And um, do they have to meet all points of the criteria, or most of them, or? Um, What's the minimum requirement in regards to what's uh, suggested? Um, no, they do not need to meet all of the criteria. So there are several there are several things, right? So one of the compliance issues is whether or not they work for healthcare. And if we have enough people on our board who already work in healthcare, <laughs> they go to an applicant right away if they worked for healthcare in the healthcare industry because we have a limit to how many people on the board could do that. So in some cases, the limit is for if you do this, you can't come on if we have too many. And in other cases, it's we want as many as possible who meet a specific criteria. Um, so for example, for our patient population, we would take as many patients, we have to have a minimum of 51%. So at all times, we have to have at least 51% patients, but we would be happy to have patients and have a board representation that was 75% patient or 90% patient, right? So, so it goes in both directions. Then we also have um, kind of area expertise, and that is we try to look for a balance of expertise. However, um, there aren't any restrictions based on compliance. For example, if uh, people had finance expertise and everybody the box that says that they had finance that would be fine. There's no limit and there's no just a recommendation that somebody on the board have that. And so sometimes we do specific recruitment for people who have an area of expertise that we feel that our board is lacking that and doesn't have enough people to represent that experience or provide um, expertise in that area. But there's nothing that otherwise that they would be required does that answer your question? Um, yes, it does. Um, I have one other question that um, uh, might be answered by Mr. Pena. Um, one of the questions I have, um, um, other than what's uh, spelled out that's required uh, to accept a new member, uh, can we, as a 
as a cab, can we change those requirements in any way, shape, or form um, in, in which um, the purpose would be to uh, to bring somebody on board um, who's not who doesn't necessarily fit um, the current um, the current qualifications. In other words, are the qualifications uh, regarding accepting a new member are they set in stone, uh, or are, or can they be changed? And if they can be changed, can the co-applicant board in any way change? change those requirements? Yeah. So the answer to your question, Mark, is uh, yes, changes can be made. However, those changes cannot contradict what's statutorily required. So, uh, you know, so long as it, it doesn't deviate from those requirements, yeah, the board can certainly expand, uh, you know, the scope of who may be an ideal candidate or applicant. Okay. Thank you. Um, if you look at the, if, if it helps, Mark, I can also review the short list of qualification categories, so this idea that there there are qualification categories and people can meet you know one or more of those. So an example of the qualification categories for our co-applicant board on the application include being a patient of Alameda Health System, or being a person with lived experience of homelessness, or a person who works with people who have experienced homelessness either professionally or in a volunteer capacity, or a familiarity with healthcare delivery systems, or a keen understanding of existing healthcare funding sources and emerging, and emerging financial models, or an understanding of multitude of issues relating to participating in managed care programs, or experience with employee organizations, or, ex or a strong business management, legal, finance, or program management background, or experience with managing hospital services, or experience with or understanding of the delivery of healthcare services by nonprofit entities, an interest in or experience with the healthcare needs Alameda Health System patient population, or understanding or an experience with the understanding of the concept of health equity and experience in advocating for safety net institutions, including but not limited to the pursuit of public funding for the delivery of healthcare services. So those are the qualifications. For example, we don't have any qualifications that require you to have a specific edu um, educational background. Um, we don't have qualifications that require, you know, special degrees or anything like that. Um, this is mostly about um, experience and interest, specifically with with healthcare in some cases. Um, let me, um, this is Mark again, uh, let me state uh, the reason for my uh, the asking uh, specifically of the, the question of requirements is um, 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 I just want to state for the record that um, I do have a, an interest in the idea of actually at some point um, in the future uh, that we could appoint um, to our membership uh, a retired physician, possibly even a, a a um, a physician uh, who is a specialist in, in a particular area, um, um, who may be retired or semi-retired, um, and also uh, maybe the inclusion of some uh, of a healthcare ethicist, uh, somebody who is familiar with healthcare ethics. Thanks, Mark. Those are great suggestions for candidates. 
process for once we have an application? Is there anything missing from the process that you would want added? If it's adequate, then this is the process we'll continue doing. This is what we're doing right now. Um, and so if there are additional steps in the process that, that you would be interested in doing, then now would be a great time to discuss them. Uh, Mark again. Um, I, I personally um, don't think so at this time. At least uh, for me, I, 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 I see no reason to change. Um, however, um, you did state that there is somebody uh, who is a candidate, and the question is, uh, will we be meeting that candidate tonight, or uh, will we be voting on that candidate uh, this evening? Yes. Um Electing that member to the board is the next item on the agenda. Um, okay. And he is not today, so you will not be I'm sorry, uh, you cut out there for a second. What was your last part? He would not be here? You would not be here at the, the meeting? He is not tonight. I do not see him here tonight. Uh, okay. So I'm just going to make a note of, I see in the comments from Neha that she has no reservations with the process. Um, so mm -hmm. I think that concludes my presentation. Thank you so much, Heather, for the review. Um, so next on our agenda item, um, We actually have um, the, the election, uh, possible election of this member. Um, I believe we have the resume or the application. Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. It's included in your packet, and I think because this is an action item, before we can discuss the candidate. Um, then we would need a motion. Um, so can I have a motion um, to uh, elect um, or to vote for the election of a new member um, to the homeless co-applicant board? I make a motion that we vote to elect a new member to the cab. Thank you. Um, so the motion passes, and we can begin discussion on this election, on this candidate. Um, do we want to review the, the uh, application, or is there any specific questions that um, people have? note that, um, you know, whenever we have an application also, you'll see that um, a lot of the information on the application is redacted for the, piece, the, per, the person's privacy. Um, right. So, for example, you'll see there that you'll get their, their name. So this is for Khalil, okay. Um, and then as far as which qualifications the candidate meets, specifically around, you know, being patients of Alameda Health System, this is protected health information, which is why all of them are marked as an X, and that means it's not an X, but they're blacked out. So this means that you don't have that information. You're, it, it's not telling you which of these things this person um, meets, 
but you are assured by our office that they meet the criteria and they keep our um, membership in compliance. Um, but some of this is protected health information, so we can't disclose it, which is why it's redacted. <coughs> but if you look on the next page where there's a questionnaire, you can get a little bit of information about Khalil. Um, it says that he has been working with the homeless population since 2008 in a variety of positions and has observed that they are falling behind between the cracks and not getting the health services they need. He worked at a residential program for almost 10 years and has seen the homeless population struggling daily and having primary physicians with having a primary physician and other health services. Um, Heather, this, um, Heather, this is Mark Smith. Yes. Uh, just a quick question. Um, how, did he, how did he come to our attention? Um, Khalil um, is known to the mobile health clinic. Um, he works specifically at HEDCO, which is one of the sites that we, um, where we serve patients. And so we've met him there. Uh, okay. Can I ask a question? If, if I know about his past experience um, on a little more personal level, is that okay? I mean, it, it doesn't disqualify me for voting for or against him, correct? I don't think so. Okay, good. I'm sure. Yeah, usually conflict of interest comes in if there's some sort of a financial um, okay. financial obligation um, mm -hmm. between you and somebody else. So that's what would prohibit you from being able to vote. So for example, right. if he worked for you, oh, yeah. Yeah. that would be mm -hmm. Conflict of interest. Conflict of interest, right. <laughs> yes. Um, and some of the other experience you'll see listed on number two, he has experience on board. There are two that are listed there as examples. And then he's included also his resume. So if you scroll to the next page, you'll also see his work um, experience as well. That's page 13 of 41. That's correct. Thank you so much, Mark. Okay. Um, and he did mention to me, he gave us his old resume. He didn't include his current experience, which is um, like I had mentioned at HEDCO, um, uh, which is a, a BACS site, BACS, yeah. yeah. Um, 
there certainly should not be um, anything read into the fact that um, he is not present currently, um, that he would not be able to fulfill um, the uh, requirement um, to, to, uh, to actually um, uh, be present at meetings, right? Correct. Through his application and applying for the position, he has told us that he is available to come to the meetings and be a member of the board. Okay. He's not a member right now and, and has chosen not to come to this meeting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Alex, so I think we can move forward with our vote. Um, uh, maybe we could do
So as usual, I'm going to start with just updating you all on the COVID-19 homeless response. I think um, it's just important to keep track of because it's the one place in our work that is changing fairly rapidly. And I think it's important to, to um, kind of keep tabs on that. And then I wanted to make sure that everyone was aware that um, Measure W passed and talk a little bit about what that, um, what that means. So um, we can go to the next slide. So um, you'll see here that um, homeless cases and outbreaks um, continue at a similar rate, although I did highlight um, that in red that there are eight open outbreaks at shelters now, which is actually um, a bit of an increase you know, for shelters. The encampment outbreaks have not seemed to be an uptick, but um, it was rare previously to be managing more than one or for the, the healthcare for the homeless team in the county to be managing more than kind of one or two outbreaks at a time in the shelter setting and um, as of the a couple weeks ago which is the last report that they put out on this um, there were eight you know all happening at the same time and I think that's consistent with increasing case rates increasing hospitalizations and increasing rate of spread in our community um, if anything you know the rates are about the same as the, the the increases are about the same as what's happening across the population it's not that there's a special increase in people experiencing homelessness it's that we see a lot more coronavirus spreading across our community more broadly. Um, so that's something that we'll keep an eye on. Certainly, um, you know, it, 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 is a, it is and would be a, a big strain on um, the dedicated staff within Healthcare for the Homeless um, at, at the county that are, that are responding to outbreaks. And um, if it were to, say, double again beyond this, I would imagine that we would need to do um, – that we would probably be pulled in an Alameda Health System and we would need to start doing things that are more um, sort of emergency oriented yeah. versus business as usual from the response that we've set up. So and we'll keep an eye on that and, and let you all know how that's going. Um, but just underscores that, um, you know, we are really in a precarious moment um, as regards uh, coronavirus transmission across the country right now, and that includes the Bay Area. Damon, I have a question. Um, are we still sending out workers to do testing at the encampments on a regular so, basis? So the, the county has um, quite a lot of testing that it's supporting. Alameda Health System, we were involved very intensively before there was anything official set up so that our, you know, our mobile, um, mobile health team was, was really kind of on the front lines right at the beginning when it was just like all hands on deck and let's figure out some systems. Um, since that time, it's been great. The county's been able to develop, um, you know, support via contractors and via mobilizing the um, a volunteer workforce, uh, public health workforce. And so there's a more standardized approach, and and there's there is wide access uh, to testing that's available both for people in shelters and people in the encampment. Right. Thank you. But Alameda Health System, we're we're not we're we haven't been involved um, in those responses much, you know, since the first couple months okay. of the of the following shelter in place. Mm -hmm. uh, Damon, uh, Mark, Mark here. Um, uh, one quick question. Um, uh, given the outbreak, uh, can you say, um, or can you uh, say that, uh, well, can you give us an idea of whether or not uh, this has impacted um, um, I see uh, the number of ICU beds uh, at at Highland um, or the capacity uh, currently uh, that uh, Highland is dealing with at this 
point in time and and how that might factor in um, uh, the hospital uh, possibly being overrun. Yeah, we are seeing increases at some hospitals. I know uh, San Leandro has seen more patients in the hospital recently. Um, I don't know the, the specific stats around the ICU or around our hospitals overall. You know, of course, we have Alameda Hospital, San Leandro Hospital, and, um, and uh, Highland Hospital as well. Heather may have some of those stats more at the ready. Heather, do you, wanna, do you have any kind of additional data you want to add in response to Mark's question? I'm um, sure. So we get a we get a, a weekly and sometimes a bi-weekly update on how many patients are inpatient, and so the current number right now is 28 patients. Um, this is higher, for example, than last week, and but it has been higher than this before, and so um, Alameda Health System does still have capacity right now. Thank you. And Mark, was there a second part to your question? Uh, I mean, I think there was there was kind of a part about what you know, just commenting on the trend, and I think I think all the trends in the area are concerning right now. Uh, more cases, more hospitalizations, um, the sort of modeling of what the effective rate of transmission is is that each person is giving it to more than one other person, which means, of course, you get exponential spread through the population. So that those are the dynamics that we're dealing with right now, um, and I think they they underscore the. The, you know, our county and all the counties in the Bay Area are really implementing this, this, um, this more stringent uh, shelter-in-place order, um, you know, over the past weekend. Um, I'd like to ask one other question regarding this issue. Um, just out of curiosity, I think you've answered this before, so uh, stop me if you heard this question before. But just out of curiosity, um, uh, among, um, uh, among, the, um, among the spread of COVID among uh, the general population versus the homeless pop population that we have in our program uh, or that we're treating in our program, um, is, there, uh, is there a separate count regarding possible deaths of homeless people uh, in the Health Care for the Homeless program versus the general populace uh, who uh, deaths among uh, the general population uh, that's treated by Highland? There's no official statistic that I'm aware of, either countywide or within uh, the deaths that have happened at Highland Hospital, that, that categorizes deaths based upon whether people are experiencing homelessness. There okay. is an analysis of deaths that, um, that's underway that the county is leading right now that um, may try to get at that information, but it's, it's unclear um, you know, whether that's going to be doable and, and how reliable the data will be. Um, that they can pull from different sources to verify whether or not someone was homeless before death. Okay. Um, and but but there is some there is some interest in looking into that question, and I know people are people are trying to figure out if it's possible to produce some data around that. There really are still a relatively small number of of deaths in Alameda County versus other places. So once we start slicing and dicing the population, you know, for example, by hospital, you start to get to small numbers where it's hard to even observe trends and say whether they mean anything or not. I think what we can say is the, the case rate trends, certainly among people experiencing homelessness, do not look worse than the general population overall. And we can say that knowing that we have pretty good access to testing, you know, pretty good abilities to respond to outbreaks. Um, uh, I think that, that we can be pretty confident about that the case rates look, look similar to the population overall, which I think is quite an achievement by itself. Right. 
Oh, one other question I have about testing. Um, I, um, just out of curiosity, you know, there's been, at least for me, uh, there's, uh, because I've been tested several times because of hospital visits, um, just out of curiosity, there seems to be like a modicum of different tests at different places. And, you know, there's a question about efficacy of different tests, uh, whether they whether they measure uh, COVID well or not. And um, my question is the tests that are being applied uh, in the field, say with the, with the mobile clinic uh, and the street teams, um, and also in-house, uh, can you describe what kind of COVID tests are being done? And what I mean by that, there's been there's been a test where basically they they only swab just the inner part of your nose instead of going deeper in, for instance. Or uh, I recently heard there's now a mouth swab test uh, that is uh, quicker, faster in terms of returning results. And could you speak to the efficacy of the type of COVID test you're using uh, in the field or at the hospital? Uh, and what's the turnaround time in terms of results? Yeah, so our mobile health team is no longer doing any field-based testing. Um, we, were, we were initially doing uh, quite a bit of the testing or at least a large proportion of any of the testing that was happening at all, which was really just about responding as quickly as we could to places where we had suspected cases. And in that case, we were using the, um, the county public health lab um, for testing, and we were using a PCR-based test that um, where the turnaround time was between 24 and 72 hours. That test okay. is still available. It's still being used across our system. Um, the biggest change in testing that happened following that really happened around the time that we stopped doing testing in the mobile health program. Although Alameda Health System has a has a testing facility at, at you know Henry J Kaiser, um, and and we're you know as an organization still doing community based testing. Um, the 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 first big change was really um, a rapid test that was available in the ER that gave that gave results you know within an hour or so. It's not quite as accurate as the um, as the PCR based test, but it gave a faster turnaround time. And so there are certain situations where that test made more sense to use because it was really important to get the information back to make a decision right away. Um, okay. And now there's there's sort of, you know, uh, I think we've had at least five different, you know, labs and, and specific test kits that we've used um, within Alameda Health System. And they're kind of across that, that spectrum. Um, I don't think there's, there's a lot of differences really in the substance of those tests. So the way I sort of think about it is there, there are, some tests that are faster and relatively less accurate, some tests that are relatively more accurate and take longer. Um, I don't think we're doing many tests at all that involve the you know, posterior nasopharynx, like putting the swab back as far as you can. I think we're, we're, we're doing most of our swabbing either in the anterior nares or, or in, the, in the throat um, now. But I can double check on those kinds of things if you're, if you're interested in them. I, I think um, you know, for the most part, we have adequate testing and we've done a lot internally to manage the supply and shift it around over time. Okay, thank you. Um, so I think we can go to the next slide here. Um, so we, um, we've looked at these graphs over time of the, um, of the occupancy of the two types of um, coronavirus-related housing that we have. So again, Safer Ground is the program 
for people who are high risk, um, who are not necessarily infected or suspected to be infected, but if they got infected, it would be um, potentially catastrophic for their health because they're older and they have multiple chronic illnesses. Um, we actually see, you can see at the end of that graph, a little bit of a decline from um, you know, the beginning of October through the end of November in the numbers of folks in safer ground. Again, part of that is that uh, they stopped taking in new people um, toward, the, toward, toward the beginning of November because of the uncertainty around uh, funding. And there continued to be some folks who were exiting safer ground, either you know, exiting with nowhere to go or exiting to permanent housing. And we'll look at some of those stats later. So that's where that um, slight decline comes from. And then um, for Operation Comfort, which is the next slide, this is our isolation and quarantine housing. So for people who are suspected to be infected or exposed, and we're wanting to um, help them not transmit to anybody else um, if they do wind up to be infected, um, you can see, you know, we had these patterns where we've moved in large numbers of people as we as we decompress specific facilities. Um, really, the trend I think over the last month or so, you can see in November is just a small uptick in the numbers there, which may reflect this, you know, this new um, this new surge um, that we're that we're experiencing, you know, across the country and here in the Bay Area. Um, Demon, um, based on the dates here um, uh, of the of a dip in November, um, November seventh and twenty first. Uh, that's pre-Thanksgiving. Do you, do you, uh, despite the fact we're talking about homeless people uh, in general, um, do you think that uh, uh, that uh, given that there have been holiday travels and that and that sort of thing, that normally wouldn't affect uh, this group necessarily, but um, do you do you think there'll be an uptick uh, in in the numbers? I think most of the trends, you know, that we've seen so far in people experiencing homelessness here and around the country have really reflected whatever is happening in the community more broadly. Um, and so I think, you know, uh, I think it's likely we're going to see some effect of that travel and those gatherings on the numbers overall, and that we'll see some of that effect in people experiencing homelessness too. But it's really a lot, lot of speculation. It's hard to answer your question with any sort of specific evidence. So I think the next couple slides actually look at exits from these um, facilities, and I think this starts to give you a sense of the movement of people experiencing, you know, homelessness and what's what's happening as a uh, over the course of the, you know, pandemic and the response to the pandemic locally. So, um, in the Safer Ground program, which is again for for people who are at high risk to get complications of COVID, there have been 355 exits. Um, there were 14 exits in the week before this report was produced. And you can see that um, 137 of those, or a little over a third, were to permanent destination. 157 were to other temporary destinations. You know, Safer Ground is itself a temporary destination. 21 were to institutional destinations. And then another 40, they weren't able to document where people were moving to. Um, so, you know, about a third of folks, this seems to be moving, you know, this seems to be potentially helpful in that they're exiting from Safer Ground to a permanent destination, so helpful in terms of housing status, which is almost always helpful in terms of health status as well. Um, we can look at the um, Operation Comfort numbers next, I think. Um, uh, David, can I ask one question? Yeah. 
uh, about the uh, institutional destinations. When you say institutional des destinations, uh, what des destinations are you referring to in terms of instant institutional? The hospital would be one, jail would be another institution, um, you know, a facility basically where, um, you know, where, where someone's staying that's not really a, a usual place of residence. I see. Like a house or an apartment. I see. Okay. So actually, I, I didn't include the Operation Comfort um, exits, which mostly are not to permanent housing. It's even lower, which could be expected compared to safer ground, where people are staying for a long period of longer period of time. Um, there are more housing opportunities available for people who are older and have other, you know, health issues going on. Um, so the the numbers for Operation Comfort, um, you know, reflect the shorter stays and the fact that people are, are, you know, have are generally in more transient situations and are generally less eligible for the housing opportunities um, that that exist. Um, well, what we'll show you for for both of these sites uh, is the um, the patterns in what's happening with exits by race. Um, so these are these are kind of complicated, but um, I think they're worth they're worth looking at actually in some detail. So at um, what you can see here is the percentage of people that are exiting to uh, or that that um, that have certain characteristics, you know, on the on the left hand column, and then um, by race and by ethnicity. So for example, the the gray bars are for the percentage of people in the point in time count who are white, black, Asian, etc. The red bars are for the percentage of people in safer ground overall who are white, black, Asian, et cetera. And then the pink bars are for exits to permanent housing. So these are the folks who are getting the best outcomes, right? Um, so you can say moving, you know, from a shelter to safer ground, maybe that's a better thing than not, than not moving because you're getting protected. Um, and then exiting to permanent housing is a really good outcome. So you can see that whites, for example, make up 31% of the population of people experiencing homelessness in the point in time count. They make up a higher proportion of the people in safer ground overall, 39%, and they make up an even higher proportion of the people who are exiting to permanent housing at 48%. Um, whereas for African Americans, they represent 47% of the point in time count, which is again, heavily disproportionate to African Americans in the population, or about 10% of the population. 45% of the people in safer ground, and then um, and then 40% of people exiting um, to permanent housing having that you know that best of all outcomes. So we can really see the disparities in our system kind of operating in this data, both for you know African Americans and um, I think if you look at people of multiple races, um, there's similar you know that similar spread. And then um, if you look at uh, at ethnicity, we don't actually see the same thing produced for the safer ground population for um, Hispanic Latinos, rather, they're a higher proportion of people who are exiting to permanent housing um, compared to people in the point in time count or safer ground overall. So that's a little bit complicated. Is that is that sort of clear what that what those data are showing to folks? Does anyone have any questions either about the data or, or about how to interpret that? Well, um, Mark, again, um, one question. Um, could you uh, further characterize uh, the multiple races uh, bars? I can't. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know what reporting is underneath that. I can ask the question. Uh, okay. Um, but I, that's the that's the category that we have. Okay. Yeah. I just yeah. I'm just curious about um, what the category means when they say multiple races. Yeah. And I think in that case, it's possible that 
the definition of multiple races and the point in time count versus the definition for the safer ground and, and exits permanent housing data might be different or that, you know, the way the data are collected might be different so that, you know, part of that may be driven by differences in data collection, you know, rather than necessarily differences in the underlying proportion in the population. But I think okay. for, you know, for folks who are white or black or um, identify as, you know, um, Latino ethnicity or not Latino ethnicity, I think those, those are likely to be more stable across whatever, you know, whatever data source we're looking at. All right. The, um, um, by any chance, um, is there, um, is there, oh, I don't know what word to use. Is there, is there any way to determine uh, among these groups, um, and maybe under, it might be under multiple races, uh, hard to say, um, in regards to the count of people who consider themselves uh, transgender? Um, I have not seen this data reported by gender. Um, but I can I can um, certainly ask um, the county if they've collected that and and, uh, and and bring that back to you or send it out you know via email in between. Okay, that would be great. You know, Damon, I think I heard something uh, from the county recently. It was um, addressing the youth population in the same way um, that this chart is, and I guess it was for um, there's a new. Um, a new home, I guess you earn a new set of um, homes opening up very soon for um, people 22 and under. Are you familiar with that in Oakland? I'm not. I saw Heather nodding, so maybe Heather has, has heard something about that. Yeah, it's it's um, it's pretty cool from what I've read about it. And um, there's going to be people that live on site. Maybe Heather, you can say more about it. I know very little. I mean, I want to say that I think I saw it posted on um, Instagram. <laughs> that's what, that's um, what I now is an Instagram post because I think somehow I'm friends with somebody. So I just saw that it was a <laughs> space and that it was almost ready and that they were getting it ready. And, and, and so, but there wasn't a lot of detail in, in what I was looking at. I just, that's my yeah. family. You know where it is? I know it's tiny homes. It's tiny homes, right. And I think it's, I think it's over in the Hagenberger area. I'm not positive, but I think it's over there. And I know that um, the heating is going to be floor heating. You're going to have one central kitchen and one central showering bathroom area. And they they drew beautiful murals on each one of the little houses uh, to depict different themes. And so it's almost ready to go from what I understand. Is that, is that Nihon, Nihon speaking? No, this is Loretta. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Uh, Loretta, uh, may I ask a question? Sure. Uh, just out of curiosity, um, do you happen to know um, uh, who's, who's behind um, the, this development? Um, is it a nonprofit or, um, or is it any um, possible partners with AHS or? Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure, Mark. Um, I thought when I was reading this, I was reading something about Alameda County along with it. Oh, so I, I see. They're tied in. They're tied in somehow. I just don't know exactly how. Oh, okay. Thank you. Uh huh. So I think yeah. With, with any of these, um, you know, new opportunities that come online fast and get systems built up around them uh, quickly, I think they tend to reflect um, 
you know, what happens in our systems broadly around, um, you know, inequities. So you can see, like, the baseline point-in-time count homelessness is very disproportionately bad, and then the system makes the disproportionality worse. Um, and I think it's really, it's really frustrating knowing how much attention I think the county's paid to this issue. You know, I think I really commend them for looking at the data in this way, for reporting it out to us in this way. Um, but I think, you know, we, we need to dig deeper into these trends and, and understand more of the specific mechanisms that are operating in order to be able to reverse them. I think it's tempting to sort of say, well, this is, you know, his, history and generations of oppression, which of course it is, but I think um, we I'm hopeful that we can find more proximate, kind of close, <laughs> like, you know, levers that we can work to, to change this reality. Because it, it's pretty upsetting to see this disparity made worse by the by the solutions that we're putting into place. It looks like there is some systemic uh, profiling almost that's happening for people who are looking for housing. And we need to figure out what sort of mechanism is letting that create this disparity and do do we need to sort of re reevaluate the way we are evaluating who is ready for permanent housing and who isn't yeah i think i think that that could be part of it uh you know certainly in other places we know that um people rely on their own you know resources and social networks um so we all we often report these as system outcomes they're quite often, you know, supported by a person's family, community, by the 20 years of work they did, um, you know, before, before that allowed them to get SSDI income that is a, at a higher rate than SSI income. And so the same factors in the rest of society that sort of drive disparities in the employment market or disparities in the strength of people's social networks really often contribute to your ability to, to land in a, you know, a permanent housing situation as well. Um, but I think your question is really appropriate, and it needs to be examined. You know, if if the if the challenges are primarily of the type that you're talking about, where we have systemic issues in the in the permanent opportunities that are relatively more controlled by institutions, then let's figure that out. If not, then let's understand more about the policy environment and how we can how we can do something that counteracts you know those other mechanisms. But I think that you know, that idea that you have underscores the necessity of kind of digging deeper into the data to figure out what is really happening to the, to, you know, to people as they, as they move through the system that results in, in the data that we're looking at. Um, so the, the next slide for Operation Comfort shows very similar statistics um, with, um, I think, an even stronger, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, trend um, in, in favor of, you know, whites and um, and also Latino ethnicity actually having relatively much better outcomes than, than African-Americans, um, you know, coming from coming from Operation Comfort. Overall, the numbers are much lower, um, you know, uh, of people exiting to permanent housing um, from Operation Comfort versus from safer ground or the, the proportions are much lower. Um, but the trends you can see are basically the same. Is that, is that uh, uh, page 2341? Uh, I can't see the page number here. Oh, okay. Yes, page 23 out of 41. Okay. The disparity is 
strikingly stark in this one if you miss it in the previous one. But you, you can't really miss it in this one. Right. 31% of the point in time count, 71% of the exits to permanent supportive housing for yeah. whites, 47% of the point in time count, 17% of the exits to permanent housing um, for, for African Americans. I think it's just, uh, it's like, like you said, it's really striking. So, um, based on this, and um, like she said, this is a much starker um, um, demonstration. Um, um, I guess, I guess, I, I guess, I uh, wonder: um, is there any way for us to uh, find out, uh, or is there any kind of vehicle we could construct that would allow us? Uh, to try to find out why that disparity exists. I mean, why is there such a difference? I think the, the, there are many county partners that are part of the housing system that are engaged in a, uh, you know, conversation around the Bay Area around uh, racial equity in the in in homeless um, response systems and and you know the the coordinated. Um, you know, permanent supportive housing systems, et cetera. And so I think there, people are undertaking some analyses of that and, and having discussions and conversations. And um, I think, you know, for me, I'm, I'm trying to keep track of those and, and report those to you all so that we can be aware of the trends, you know, from a healthcare perspective about how we can participate. Um, in particular, you know, as you all know, we serve um, a lot of African-Americans at Alameda Health System and a lot of poor African-Americans at Alameda Health System who um, even if they don't experience homelessness themselves, are um, very affected and impacted by homelessness in, in their families and communities. And then, of course, our homeless health center serves, you know, a lot of African-Americans who are homeless. And so um, this landscape is really critical for determining the prospects for living a healthy life for the people that we serve. Um, so I, I think um, I'm, I don't know the answer to your question, Mark, but I'm really curious about it, too, and we'll continue to report whatever I can find out. I think there is a, a, a process underway to, um, to to kind of come up with a, the next level design of our coordinated entry system for the housing and urban development funded housing programs. And so I think there's going to be some report out of what that design is going to look like. Currently, we have these um, housing, um, what are they called, uh, the, the, the centers that um, people can call into. Help me out, Heather. Uh, <laughs> I'm blanking on like the name. Like the 211? Yes, the 211 is, is the yeah. sort of single place you call into, and then there are a few right. different kind of coordination centers. And I think there's, a, there's, there's conversation about how to evolve that and how that, that design may, have been, may be contributing to, you know, um, worsening disparities. And so mm-hmm. um, I'm looking for more of the sort of official, you know, report outs and analyses around this. But I think... Like many other communities, there aren't. Um, I think we're, this work is really starting, frankly, around uh, people have been talking about disparities and mapping them like this. But I think really trying to theorize about how we can fix them, there's very little work that does that around the country. And and so um, I think we need to we need to keep attending to it, you know, as a board and um, and trying to drive it as much as we can. Maybe we'll be the first. That would be good. Yeah, I, I think there are I think there are others that have done that have done some work. Um, you know, I th- I, it's 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 a question of what kind of work and how much you know versus the first. I think everyone's doing doing some things, but I don't think anyone's sort of um, done anything that is 
so successful that we all need to copy it yet. You know what I mean? <laughs> Which I, I'm looking forward to that, you know, right. uh, seeing something like that from somewhere. Um, so I'll move to the to the next part of the uh, medical director report, which is just a single slide. You can go to the next slide on Measure W, um, just to make sure that you all are aware of this. So Measure W, um, can you scroll down a little bit so I can read it? Um, yeah, Measure W will fund housing and services for people experiencing homelessness. So it's uh, it was a ballot measure uh, for a 0.5 percent sales tax increase for 10 years. So that's an increase to a sales tax of 9.75% in Alameda County. It's expected to generate, according to the people who did the analysis and put it on the ballot, $150 million per year for the county general fund. So the dollars actually go to the general fund. They don't go to a specific separate fund for homelessness. Um, but the county is committed to, to use these funds for people experiencing homelessness. Um, it passed with really just over 50% of the vote. I think Heather and I were looking at it, you know, following the election, and it was going back and forth from like, did it pass? Did it not pass? Did it pass? Did it not pass? And and uh, finally, I think it was certified as passing just I think last week maybe. Um, we're waiting for more information from the county about exactly how the new funding will be administered. I've heard that that they're planning to have some kind of an oversight committee for this, um, analogous to some of the other special funds um, like Measure A-1 or, um, or Measure A that, that have, um, that have uh, you know, sort of specific oversight committees. Um, so I'm expecting some sort of structure like that. And of course, this is a potential source of funds. You know, we provide services for people experiencing homelessness. So it's a potential source of funds for homeless health center activities. Um, I think, you know, the demand is enormous for housing and for services for people experiencing homelessness. So there's going to be a lot of conversation about what the best uses of, of this funding um, will be. Um, but I think certainly we'll, you know, we'll be in those conversations uh, as the Homeless Health Center. And I think, um, I think we are uniquely positioned for, for um, opportunities that are about leveraging Medicaid funding. Um, the county itself doesn't really have a mechanism to bill Medicaid for um, primary care services or physical health care services. Um, and um, would need to contract with, you know, community health, community-based organizations, or with with our health authority um, for any any sort of services that are in, you know, in that in that lane. And I think, um, you know, it might it might make sense for us to develop some joint programming around that, where we can actually leverage, um, you know, medical billing um, to 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 make this money mean even more. Um, where you can subsidize a program that can then be partially supported by, by you know, um, insurance revenue from, from primarily from Medi-Cal. Um, so we'll keep you posted, obviously, on what we know about this. And, um, and certainly if there are opportunities, you know, if we hear about opportunities for the oversight committee, for you to um, look at yourselves, for you all to send out to your networks. Because, um, again, this is a really important opportunity. And I think it's a start toward what we really need as a community. Um, you know, I think it's very hard um, for a county uh, to, to fund its own, you know, housing and services. These are, um, you know, arguably these are parts that, parts of what the federal government and the state government funded, you know, 30, 40 years ago. So I think this is a big, um, this is a big deal from the voters of Alameda County to say, we'll tax ourselves um, to step into this need. It's that great. Um, and I think it's a really important step, but again, it's, it's part of, you know, a huge gap that we need to fill um, locally. Um, 
um, this is Mark again. Um, I'd like to make a statement for the record. Uh, I'd just like to say um, I, one, uh, the concern about Measure W, um, uh, the only concern I had about voting for it was uh, uh, was the second um, point of this um, that's listed here, and that's uh, that it's expected to generate about $150 million per year. Um, the key is for county general fund, and um, my only concern is is uh, that it is going to a general fund, and that Measure W did not uh, dictate as as far as the structure uh, that that money, um, although maybe going to the general fund, that there be um, restrictions on how the county can use those funds and. Uh, that's my only concern about it going into the general fund because um, in the past, uh, with some of these measures, um, uh, money that goes in the general fund uh, um, unfortunately doesn't always go to w where it's meant to go, and uh, that would be my only concern about um, about this particular uh, funding stream. Yeah, my understanding of the funding stream is very consistent with yours. It, it goes to the general fund. There's nothing in the in the text of the measure itself that you know restricts where it can be used. I do think that um, from what I've heard so far from different board members uh, on the board of supervisors, there's a strong intention to um, create oversight that ensures that it's you know it's used as intended. Um, but we still don't know. I still don't know at least what the design of that oversight is going to be. Um, okay. So we'll, that's that's something that you know I'll, I'll continue to look out for and report back here. And I think if you all have any information to share with me that you come across in your work, by by all means, share with us so that we can um, we can ensure that that um, you know that that doesn't happen with this with this funding. Um, what you talked about, Mark. Well, I'll certainly make it part of my uh, uh, part of my watching too. I'll I'll I'll, I'll definitely um, uh, ask some questions and some other places that might be able to give us the answer. One other thing I wanted to address um, before uh, just closing out this section was um, I think it might have come up just around the time that I submitted my um, slides. Um, our CEO, some of you may have heard, Del Vecchio Finley, has resigned. Um, and he um, has accepted a position at a, at a health system in, in, uh, in Atlanta, actually, or in Georgia. Um, his last day with us will be um, in like a, around January 20-something. Um, and um, we expect our you know, new board of trustees to be seated uh, this month in December and, you know, for first order of business to be to, you know, determine um, – how the organization is going to be led. Um, I think, um, you know, we have a lot of consistency in the rest of our leadership team here. Um, it hasn't really affected any of the day-to-day -day operations in, in any way. Um, we recently had, you know, a pretty, a pretty big event in the joint commission um, visit that um, I think the organization did a great job of responding to and, um, and preparing for, and we, we look forward to hearing the formal outcome of that visit, you know, which was, okay. which was focused across the entire institution uh, a lot of it on the acute care setting. It did affect us in ambulatory as well, but I think it's just an example of, you know, we have we have an enormous team of leaders that are still here, that are still committed, 
Um, and, uh, and I know Del Vecchio will be, you know, um, ensuring that, that, uh, he can do everything. He, he, he's doing everything he can, you know, through January 20th to, to make sure that we're kind of continuing steady as she goes through, um, through responding to coronavirus and, you know, all the other things that happen in the institution. Um, question, um, Mark again. Um, I, I have, I have, I've met Mr. Uh, Mr. Finley several times. Uh, I liked him. Um, Although I I don't know him and I I don't know all of all the responsibilities that he had when uh, given his position, um, is there? Um, do you know uh, by what processes or processes process or processes uh, will be used uh, in order to replace him? Uh, we'll need a board of trustees first because they're responsible for doing the hiring, and then I think they'll they'll determine the the processes. Um, so we'll wait. We'll wait to hear from them, and um, that's something else that I can I can report back to you all as we get more information. Okay. I think we owe him a great um, deal of gratitude for all he's accomplished for Highland um, over the past seven years or so that he's been there. Um, I think the number one thing is the electronic health record. I'm sure you'd all agree with me on that. That was a tremendous accomplishment. So he will be missed. Yeah, um, I, I think the uh, the health record, you know, I would definitely agree with you as a clinician is a tremendous accomplishment. And I think um, Delbecki would be the first to say that, you know, that was a really a huge team effort. Um, including county financial support, you know, right. that we got for that. Um, his own leadership, our, you know, the leadership of many members across our team. And I think um, something that, you know, I've really enjoyed about his leadership is, is how much it's shared. Uh, I think he's someone who really believes in the idea of leadership as a team sport. And, uh, and I do have a lot of confidence in, in, in the institution and the folks who remain um, to continue on this, you know, population health strategy, to continue with our attention toward health disparities, um, I think I think That's those good. things are, are likely to, uh, to continue moving forward. Um, Damon, Mark again, one quick question. Uh, speaking about the, the um, health records, um, uh, I know it's been uh, kind of rocky um, from the beginning um, and it's been, you know, um, trial and error. And I just wonder at this stage um, how um, how are things going in, in terms of the adoption of um, of the new system? Um, um, uh, w w I believe it's called Equity, or what's it called? The uh, the new program. Epic is the name of the uh, of the vendor, and our implementation of Epic is called Sapphire. Um, and I, I think it's been going really well. I think um, any implementation of a huge new system across, you know, for thousands of people to use is always going to have a lot of hiccups. Um, I think especially if you compare it to what we were dealing with before, um, you know, I think our ability, you'll hear it in the program report coming up, I think, as, a, as you know, the most important manifestation for us in the Homeless Health Center yeah. to develop, you know, a registry and start tracking data across our programs and understanding what's happening, you know, um, to our patients and, and then to give our staff tools to, um, to do their best work and to share information so, you know, they can help each other do their best work. Um, I think that 
we've already seen a lot of the benefits of the health record that way. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, to, you know, Heather sharing with you some of the data we have now from the registry that we're going to be able to get in an ongoing updated way that is just, I think, going to be transformative for us uh, mm -hmm. in comparison to what we were yeah. dealing with before. Uh, actually, the program, uh, now that I remember the name, the program I was speaking of is EPIC. Um, okay. that, was, that, that was adopted. Yeah, EPIC is the name of the, of the vendor, and they usually um, will have the, the organization itself name its own implementation of the software. So ours is called Sapphire, but it is EPIC's uh, okay. product. Yeah. Um, well, thank you, Dr. Francis, for your update. Um, I think we're going to move forward with our following agenda item. Uh, we have Heather's uh, program report. Hello, and thank you so much. So I'm going to do a quick follow-up on our Health Center compliance report from last month. I'm going to move over it quickly because in some cases there aren't changes, and we discussed some of it last week. Or, I'm sorry, not last week, last month. And so, um, but do an update on, on uh, in our Health Center compliance item B, um, where we were due to submit our report. We did do that on 11-16, which is when it was due, but it was after our last meeting. Um, and uh, we had already done the action of submitting um, in under number two, the $117,000. We had already also submitted that. Um, for number three, there was there's no change uh, since the last meeting. Um, we're still working on that. Uh, policies and procedures manual, and it's not due until January um, 1st. Um, and then the other thing was to submit complete patient and utilization data. Um, we, we submitted that on 11-13, and you're going to hear more about that um, later in this report, but that is an update from the last meeting. Um, if you scroll down to the next page, Brenda, on page 28. All right. And... Um, the other item that has been updated is the change in our HRSA grant center categorization. And so we've submitted um, a, a proposed change and we're waiting to hear back from our auditor on whether they can do that. Okay, so that's the update about our compliance. We do have another compliance um, review coming up before the end of the year, so we have one more. And then we will be done. And we also just completed our, our um, clinical Finance, I'm sorry, our clinical compliance meeting. So there will be a report on that coming soon as well. Um, you'll see our mobile health data in the next section um, showing our utilization. You can see it's pretty much hovering in the same place that it has been. Can you scroll down a little bit so they can see the chart? And I'm going over these parts quickly. This is kind of standard stuff that we talk about, and I think that you're going to be interested in some of the attached reports, so that's why I'm moving to those a little bit quickly. But if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to stop me. Okay, so we're going to move down into quality, and at this point I'm going to ask that we actually jump into, our, um, into the next sheet, which shows our Homeless Health Center Summary Report. Uh, uh, which page is that? It's going to be page 30. Oh, 30. Okay. Okay, so we did a summary report. We submitted all of the data to the county. And so this is um, information from the 1st of January because we work on a calendar year through the end of October. 
And what we did was we looked at the data for our homeless health center for that period, and then I made some comments here in our summary report. So first of all, in our homeless health center, I just want to you know, acknowledge that most of the patients that we serve in our homeless health center are, um, are indoors or have some sort of shelter. Only 6% are listed as living on the streets. Most of the patients that we see in our homeless health center are considered doubled up or living with friends or family. I know that there was a question earlier about gender identity. We also looked at our gender identity of our patients and our patients are predominantly male. We only have about 1% of our patients identifying as transgender. And you'll also notice here is where I added a little bit about our LGBTQIA um, population and right now about 4% of the patients have been documented as part of that community. Under race and ethnicity, I do want to, um, you heard a little bit from Damon earlier about the disparity there. Um, black patients in our homeless health center represent 45% of our homeless health center, but they only make up 10% of the uh, population of Alameda County. Also in our homeless health center, we have patients speaking up to 27 different languages. Most of which are, most of our patients do speak English and we have 11% who speak primarily Spanish. And about 25% of our health center identify as Hispanic or Latino or of Spanish origin. Um, another thing that I want to make special note of is our population, our, our age population, with more than 50% of our patients in our homeless health center are over the age of 50, and they are as old also as 94 years of age. Very small portion of our patients are under 18 years old. We really see the numbers jumping over the age of 50, and, and, and so that is a very large part of our group. Most of our patients have a payer source at the time of their visit, and 35% of them are covered by Alameda Alliance Managed Medi-Cal. Only about 2% of our patients in our homeless health center have no payer source. That would be that they are um, self-pay or may, may qualify for our charity care program. Is Health Act still part of that? Health Act is considered a payer source in, in this case. Um, so something is covering the patient does not have a burden. So the 6% is that there's some risk that the patient would have um, some obligation to pay. Okay. There's no other there's no other source being listed as their obligation uh, or as that obligation. Um, it's possible that some of these patients though would also represent Ryan White patients. Oh, yes. um, so so that, that that might be part of it because that is also not a payer. So those would be blank if the patient was right. under Ryan White. And at that point they would not have an obligation to pay. Right. Um, so there might be some of those in there also. Um, Heather. Uh, Mark, um, uh, looking at page 30 again under gender identity, uh, I'm just wondering out of curiosity, uh, uh, why is there no uh, why is there no um, count of the percentage of women um, under gender identity? Um, um, you did note that uh, they're predominantly male at 62 percent, uh, with one percent of our patients identifying as transgender. 
Um, but what portion uh, of of the total pop of uh, the total count um, represents women? Um, um, do we have that number? Yes. Thirty-seven. Oh, it's thirty-seven. Okay. Yeah, I tried to just keep the summary really brief to to to, to tell you the things that um, that that I considered meaningful in the analysis. Okay. Right? Dominantly male. That's the thing that I want to have stand out for you. It's 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 sixty-two percent is is a large number of male, right? Right. And knowing that there's transgender. When we get down farther in the report, you'll see some of the specific details. Um, and it will it will count everybody out, but this summary is to really highlight some analysis and not just give you the the straight numbers. Okay. Um, so under clinical encounters, I just um, let you know how many clinical encounters we reported to the county, which was eleven thousand one hundred and forty seven, and it was two thousand four hundred seventy nine patients. And so we have patients who are coming for multiple visits. Uh, most of those encounters took place at Highlands, and that's primarily because um, of our specialty clinics that are there. So a lot of, a lot of what's happening at Highland is the specialty visits. Um, although similarly, there's a lot going on in primary care, but it's why the Highland encounters are so much higher than some of the other sites is because of also, also the specialties there. And you'll be able to see that also in the data. And what we plan on doing next month is, is also counting out the difference between specialty care and primary care and what the maybe some of the health conditions are for patients um, that are coming into our clinics. And I have, I will tell you, I have already looked at it, and I know that that uh, it's, it's about half of what we do is specialty and half of what we do is primary care, but we'll have the specifics next month. Um, mobile health clinic represents about 6% of our clinical encounters overall for our health center for that 11,000 that we reported. And so there's also, I'm, I'm making note of the registry report. So the homeless population registry, which, which counts our patients who are experiencing homelessness and who are housing insecure, has 6,490 patients on it total. And that's, the registry encompasses all of Alameda Health System, not just that which is our homeless health center, which is in scope. So our homeless registry is everybody, and there are 6,490 uh, 6, patients there. Um, and, and you'll see that that's different from the number of patients that we reported to the county as having been seen in our homeless health center during the reporting period, which is the 2,479. Okay? Um, our registry is updated every week, and it, it includes patients that have been experiencing homelessness for the last 365 days. Any questions about that? If you go on to the next page, page 31, et cetera, you'll see the specific data where it kind of breaks the numbers down for you. So this is the source that gave us the analysis that is on page 30. Anybody have any questions? I'm going to talk a little bit about how a patient enters the homeless registry for 
experiencing homelessness and who are housing insecure. The, the patient can be added onto the registry either at registration or due to a clinician marking them as homeless through diagnosis or problemless, or because in our inpatient or emergency department setting, they've been marked as homeless on a workflow worksheet that the, that the team is using. Those are the primary ways that a patient lands on the registry. They don't need to have all of those things listed, but just one of them will put them there. So for example, registration can mark that a patient is experiencing homelessness by checking a homeless box that says, yes, they're homeless. Or at registration, they might list that the patient is living in a homeless shelter. Or the patient might have, we use homeless address as an address type. So if the patient has homeless as their address, then they would also land on the registry. And these are all functions that happen in registration. So that our patient service representative, our PSR, would identify the patient as homeless one of those ways right at registration. There's also a list of many addresses that have been loaded into the registry to automatically count the patient as experiencing homelessness as well. And these are, for example, the addresses of the hotels or the shelters that are in Alameda County. So that all happens via registration, either address, checking the box, marking a patient as living in a shelter. Um, those are all ways that they, they land on the registry. A clinician can also put a patient on a registry either by putting them um, homelessness on their problem list or by using a diagnosis. Usually it's a Z59 code, and that will land a patient on the registry. And then any one of our, and that's usually an outpatient, but it can happen in other settings as well, in our clinics. Um, in inpatient and emergency department, they additionally have different um, workflow worksheets. They're called flow sheets, where they need to mark a patient's residence. And if they mark it as homeless in any of those workflow sheets, then the patient would also land on the registry. And again, this is for 365 days. The patient will stay on that registry regardless if they are marked as not homeless on other encounters. Once a patient's identified as experiencing homelessness, then it, it counts for the next 365 days as a person who's, who's housing insecure and in, is included in our scope of work. Um, Heather, I have a question. Mm -hmm. um, looking at page 33, uh, and, and given um, um, earlier, um, as it was quoted earlier, uh, the, the majority of patients um, uh, do speak English. Um, on 33, there is a breakdown of the various languages spoken by uh, people who've, seen, who've been seen uh, at the Homeless Health Center. Um, and just out of curiosity, um, and this is a question for Damon too, which I wouldn't be surprised if you can't answer it uh, at this current time. But um, how and in what way, um, I mean, or let me put it this way, the, um, what is the capacity of the hospital and actually uh, in, um, when it comes to language um, where the hospital is able to uh, give the needed care uh, versus uh, a possible language barrier? In other words, what's the, what's the uh, hospital's capability of, of, uh, uh, of being able to communicate in multiple languages? We have very good ability to mm -hmm. work with patients in multiple languages. We have an interpreter services department that speaks 
up to 27 languages. And if the languages aren't available in-house by our own staff, then um, we use a language line um, to support that patient. Okay. Thank you. There's also, there's also multiple um, fact sheets that the primary care hands out in different languages. I know prior to COVID, that was one of my jobs for the K7 clinic, um, I mean K6 clinic. Um, and you can get, they, they were things that came from the CDC on diabetes or, you know, on multiple different um, topics. And um, we can just about get them in every language that's listed here. So it, it's a good, it's good. I think it's good. Yeah, I would agree. I think um, just since you asked me to weigh in on too, I, the, the one thing I would say is um, I, we don't get more time for people who speak another language across the healthcare system. And so as a policy advocacy point, nothing to do with the Alameda Health System, but I think it doesn't make sense when you have to say things four times um, to not get to spend more time in the visit. Um, but other than that, uh, the Alameda Health System is the best place I've worked around interpreter services. Oh, great. Okay. Um, so, you know, we, we definitely today provided a very specific level of detail so that you could see what the information looks like. It's our intention to not provide this level of detail um, very frequently. This will probably happen about once a year. Um, and other times, knowing that um, the percentages of these things and the analysis that also happens probably about once a year, um, and we'll just show you, per your request, kind of quarterly updates of, of where we're at as a health center, but it probably won't be at this level of detail. This is just to let you know what the system is capable of and also to show you kind of the source or how it looks when it comes out and then to provide the analysis. And if that analysis is adequate for you, then that's what we're going to give you so that we can summarize it and get you the information quickly. Of course, if you would like it any specific way, um, we can certainly do that. But our, our idea is to give it to you in this level of detail this time so you see kind of what it looks like. But otherwise, usually we're going to be giving it to you in summary and uh, about quarterly, unless there's something specific that you want to look at. Or if there's a specific a need that's coming up that's about a decision or about something that's happening that we, that we want to make a change in regards to. Okay, um, if there's nothing else on that, then I'll just uh, I'll, I'll wrap up my program report. Um, I wanted to give in the, in the leadership and advocacy section, I do want to say that um, we are waiting for our uh, draft back of the subrecipient agreement, and we haven't gotten that back yet, so we are waiting for that, and that's why it's not included on our agenda today or in any real detail, because we did submit um, a copy of the subrecipient report with our edits on it to Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Program, and so we're waiting for that to be returned to us. Um, also, I want to thank you all, and I don't know if you joined us at the gala on Friday, the free online event. Um, you can still visit the gala. You can, you can go after the fact um, by linking to the YouTube um, video um, and see the at, at minutes 38 or so, you would see the mobile health clinic in action. We have a brief video there. It's about five minutes long. And there was some fundraising specifically around the mobile health clinic. Um, so 
if you don't have that link, I will definitely follow up with, with Brenda to send that out to you so you can see it. Did anybody attend? Um, I, I wish I could have. I, I Quite frankly, I didn't know about it until after the fact. I don't yeah. know why. Yeah, uh, we, we sent out some emails, but, but it, it did kind of sneak up on us really quickly. Um, and so uh, Damon and I were there representing, and like I said, it's not too late. You can still go. You're, you're just not going in real time. It was a, a YouTube online, on, online streaming live. What is it called? Live stream. It was a live stream, YouTube live stream. Um, but I'll send the link to you guys so you can see it. Um, um, one question, Heather. Um, um, it was a, uh, the gala was a fundraiser. Uh, uh, when um, when will we or uh, won't we uh, actually have the numbers uh, regarding what um, how, uh, what funds were raised? Well, some of the links are available. They'll be raising funds through the end of the month. Um, I think is their plan, so it's probably going to increase. I can tell you, you know, there were several mechanisms that they were using to raise funds. One of them was called Fund a Need, which was kind of listed as a silent auction item. So if you went onto the online platform, you could just put in a bid and say that you were making that donation through, this, through, the, um, through the auction. And so through that mechanism, we know that we raised over $15,000, and that happened the night of the event, that that number was raising and people were making bids and they were live streaming it and he was doing shout-outs. But you can see it all online happening um, in the video when you, when you watch the video. That's all part of the whole program because the whole program is recorded from start to finish. Um, so that raised about $15,000. Um, I do know that they were also accepting donations through another mechanism um, that I think I sent out to some folks as well, um, to the board via your Alameda Health System email, which allowed you to go to this place called classy.org. And it's a fundraising platform where it's, it's like you make a team and people pledge and they give, um, not during the event, but outside of the event. And I think that there was roughly $3,000 that was also raised through that platform at the same time. Um, so, so we know that there's that. Um, there was also money that had already been raised through corporate sponsorships and other things for the event. And so at some point, the foundation will let us know um, what is being earmarked for our program. But we know that at a minimum, um, there is at least $18,000 that, um, that will likely be coming to the mobile health clinic. Oh, great. Okay. Thanks for asking. And if um, there are no other questions or comments, then I will uh, say that my report is complete. Thank you, Heather. That's exciting. Uh, um, so we will actually move on to our next uh, item, which is public comment. I don't know if we have anyone from the public on. Okay. Do we have any co-applicant board member comments? Um, I do. Um... I want to bring out something, uh, you know, um, since I've been on the board and because I don't have, um, I don't have a camera as it were, so I can't see anybody, um, 
um, I've been receiving um, um, all the necessary uh, documents regarding the meetings, uh, and that's been done by um, that's been taken. I've been well taken care of uh, by Brenda Chan, and I wanted to take a moment to recognize her as uh, a person who uh, has. Uh, been a great deal of help to me uh, because I, I, I don't have uh, access to certain things and um, she's been able to send me documents uh, uh, re regarding every meeting including this meeting and I just wanted to personally uh, publicly uh, uh, before the board uh, thank her for her diligence and um, uh, and her professionalism in, in um, helping me um, um, be prepared for uh, f for these meetings. Thank you, Brenda. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Oh, yeah, you're welcome, Brenda. Yeah, you've been a great help, and I, I really uh, just wanted to uh, give another appreciation. <laughs> um, and Heather, I see you sent out the YouTube link. For the gala, thank you. It's on the chat for anyone who would like to access that. Um, and if there's no other comments, I think we will adjourn the meeting. Okay. Um, so, uh, by the way, um, I um, I also want to say to uh, everybody who's listening, um, I wish you guys all well. Um, um, please stay safe. And for, for Pete's sakes, as much as everybody wants to get together for Christmas, uh, please be careful. Thanks, Mr. absolutely. Thank you, Mark. You too. Stay safe. Thank you. So we will adjourn the meeting at 7.22. Uh, yes. Stay safe. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. We'll